Thanks, Tim. Morning, everybody. Happy Easter and a special welcome if you're visiting. Imagine uh, going to a friend's funeral and then going to the burial, watching the coffin being lowered into the ground, and then going back to the grave a few days later and finding the coffin out of the ground, lying to the side, open and empty. And then suddenly you're aware of someone else standing with you at the gravesite. And this stranger turns to you and starts telling you off for assuming that your friend would still be dead. That is basically what we're being told happened to these women on the first Easter morning. Verses 50 to 56 of chapter 23 tell us about Jesus' burial. How Joseph of Arimathea took the dead body of Jesus, wrapped it in linen cloth, and laid it in a tomb, a cave cut in the rock. The female disciples saw the tomb and the body being laid in it, and then they go home to prepare spices and perfumes to anoint his body. They rest on the Saturday, because it's the Sabbath, and then very early on the Sunday morning, they go to the tomb. They are going to anoint Jesus' dead body. They're expecting to find a corpse. But when they get there, the stone's been rolled away, the tomb is empty, the body has gone. Suddenly, two men in shining clothes appear beside them and say, why do you look for the living among the dead? In other words, what are you doing at a tomb? Tombs are for dead people, and Jesus is not dead. Oh, he was dead, but now he's alive. He has risen. Remember what he told you. Now, only Luke's account of the resurrection records these angels asking this question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? It's almost a rebuke, isn't it? But it's a loving rebuke. It's a joyful, glorious rebuke. The women have made a mistake, a very understandable mistake. But it's a mistake that we can make too. And if we do, then like them, we're missing out. Easter, as Joel has helped us to see, is a day of immense joy. It is the day for greatest celebration. But if, like the women, we think that Jesus is still dead, we'll miss out on all that joy. Tim Keller, American author and pastor, identifies three ways that we can treat Jesus as if he's dead. Uh, we can do that by denying the miracle of the resurrection, by missing the meaning of the resurrection, and by ignoring the spiritual reality of the resurrection. And we're going to look at each of those in turn. Firstly, we can miss out on Easter if we deny the miracle of the resurrection. The women come to the tomb, as I said, expecting to find a dead body. Their assumption at this point is basically that Jesus is like any of the other prophets or religious leaders. He has lived a good life. He's given the world some inspiring teaching, but now he's dead. What the angels say to the women is effectively, if you treat Jesus like that, if you treat him like any other prophet, any other founder of a religion, then you'll never find him because he's not there. He's not among the dead anymore. He has risen, really risen, bodily risen and resurrected. The tomb is empty, the body is gone, Jesus has risen. I wonder how many of us today are making this mistake, denying the miracle 
of the resurrection, denying the resurrection as a historical event. Maybe you say, Jesus was a great man. I you know, acknowledge that. He gave the world some amazing teaching. I try to follow them. Maybe you'd even say that Jesus does live on in a way through his teaching today. But you draw a line at physical, bodily resurrection. I mean, come on. We can't believe in that now, in this modern scientific age. People back then were less sophisticated. They were more susceptible to believing in miracles and the like. Now, I've got sympathy for that view. Trained as an engineer, have some kind of scientific background. But what's interesting is that Luke is addressing that precise issue. You see, the reality is it's always been difficult to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Just look at the people in Luke's account. The women are not expecting a resurrection. Even when they find the tomb empty, they don't say, ah, of course, Remember, he said he was going to rise again. That's the only explanation. No, they, they don't come to that conclusion. The empty tomb leaves them bewildered. And when they tell the other disciples all that they've seen and heard, how do those other disciples react? Verse 11, uh, you might expect them to jump with joy at the news that Jesus is risen. But no, the women's report seemed to them like nonsense. They didn't believe it. You know, it's sometimes suggested that if you wish for something to happen enough, then you can convince yourself that it really did. According to Peter Pan, the secret is to believe as hard as you can, and then it will become true. And that's how some people explain the resurrection. The disciples so desperately wanted Jesus to rise from the dead that they convinced themselves that it had happened but this account blows that theory out of the water, doesn't it? The disciples themselves were skeptics. They weren't unscientific simpletons, desperately hoping the resurrection might be true. They didn't expect it at all. They were the very people who most needed to be persuaded because they were the ones who had seen him die. Right at the beginning of his gospel, Luke said, uh, who, who was a first century doctor, he, he tells us that he's researched everything carefully. He's spoken to the eyewitnesses, he's checked everything out, and now he's writing an orderly account of everything that happened for his friend, Theophilus. And he says he's writing it so that Theophilus may have certainty in the things he's come to believe. See, Luke wanted his friend and us as second-hand readers to have certainty about the events of Jesus' life. And nowhere is that more clear than here at the climax of his gospel. One of the striking things as you read through Luke is how many incidental details he includes. Little details that take the stories out of the realm of once upon a time, far, far away, a nameless prince rode into a certain town. You know, all very vague. No, Luke gives us places and dates and details and names of specific people, things that root the stories in a real time and a real place. And you see that here, don't you? He doesn't just say certain women went to the tomb. He names them. Mary Magdalene, who was a reformed prostitute, and Joanna, who he introduced us to back in chapter 8, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. 
Mary, the mother of James, and the others. Do you see what I mean? He, he names names. Now, scholars are in general agreement that Luke was written about 45 years after the events of Jesus' life. So, 75 to 80 AD, something like that. Think back 45 years from today, 1976. Let's round it down, 44 years. April the 4th, 1977, a very significant date, at least in my life, my birthday, my actual birthday. Um, but anyway, imagine, 1977, imagine a book coming out today, being published today, describing incredible events that happened in Adelaide in 1977. Now, the illustration breaks down because in the first century, it's not like the events of Jesus' life happened and then there was 45 years of silence and then suddenly a book pops out of nowhere. No, people were talking about everything that had happened all the way along. But anyway, let's enter into the, uh, the illustration. Imagine a book published today describing incredible, unbelievable events that happened in Adelaide, 1977. Well, you might say, I wasn't alive then, so how can I know if they're true? But there would be people around today who were alive then and who could verify or deny the things that were claimed in that book. And what if that book didn't just describe things uh, like vaguely, but name specific places and specific people. Don't you think that those people would be tracked down and asked to verify what had been written? And if there was no one who corroborated, who supported the claims being made in this book, what do you think would happen to it? Would it survive? Would it be accepted? Would thousands of people decide to base their lives on the claims of that book? No, of course not. And so why would you think that Luke and the other New Testament documents would be as widely accepted as they were if there hadn't been substantial evidence to support the claims? Now again, you might say, well, people back then susceptible to believing in miracles, but I'm not sure that's true. People back then actually would have had far more first-hand experience of death than we do. They knew dead people don't come back to life. And yet, something happened. Something happened to persuade them that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they were so persuaded, they were willing to lose their lives rather than back down from that claim. So persuaded, they turned the ancient world upside down. And one of the greatest movements in human history began. The Christian church exploded into life. You know, if you deny the miracle of the resurrection, how do you make sense of the evidence, the empty tomb, the reported appearances of the risen Jesus, the beginning of the Christian movement, the transformation of his first followers? What is your explanation? What do you think happened? You know, Cambridge professor Charles Mull has said, there is a resurrection-shaped hole in history. What do you propose to put in it? That's the first way that we can miss out on the joy of Easter, if we deny the miracle of the resurrection. The second way is if we miss the meaning of the resurrection. Look again at the angel's words, verse 6. Remember how he told you 
while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Now, part of what the angels are saying here is that the reason you don't understand the resurrection is because you don't understand his death. You don't understand that he had to die. Now, the women knew that Jesus had died, but they didn't know he had to die. They saw his death as a tragic end to a promising life. For them, his death was deeply unfortunate. But Jesus said his death was essential. These women are like a lot of people in church today. Lots of people in church believe that Jesus died and believe that he died in a courageous and loving way. They see his death as a great example. But they don't believe he had to die. What does that mean? What does that mean he had to die? Well, it means it wasn't an accident. It was all part of the plan. Jesus went to his death knowingly and willingly. His life wasn't taken from him. No, he deliberately, willingly gave up his life to death. But why? Why why was Jesus' death part of the plan? Well, right through Luke's gospel, the theme of salvation has been absolutely central. We we sang about that, didn't we? It's, It's central throughout the whole Bible, but particularly in Luke's gospel. We're told Jesus has come as saviour. He's come to save people through the forgiveness of sins. And that is why he had to die. The sobering truth is that you and I are so sinful. Our sin is so serious that the only way for Jesus to save us was by giving his life for us. Dying in our place. Dying for our sins. If you think, you know, I'm a good person, I try to follow Jesus' teaching, I try to live like Jesus, surely that should be enough. The angels would say, no, it's not enough. See, Jesus didn't just die as an example for us to follow. He died as our substitute in our place. And it's through his death and resurrection that we can have absolute confidence that our sins really are forgiven. You see, the resurrection shows that his death worked. The resurrection proves that the penalty for our sins has been paid in full. Imagine you're convicted of a crime and your debt to society is five years in prison. How do you know when that debt has been fully paid? Well, when the prison doors are opened and you get to walk out. The Bible says the penalty for our sins is death. But Jesus took that penalty for us when he died on the cross. How do we know that the penalty has been paid in full? Well, because the door of death has opened And Jesus has walked out. Here are two signs that you don't really believe that Jesus had to die for you. You still think that what really matters is what you do. One is self-pity, the other is self-loathing. They seem kind of opposite, but they've actually come from the same root. 
Firstly, you, you live in self-pity. You, you feel sorry for, sorry for yourself a lot of the time. You regularly think that you deserve a better life than the one you're getting. You focus on all the ways that you're serving others, all the good things that you're doing, and you feel that you're not being rewarded uh, with what you deserve. If that's how you think, then you haven't fully grasped that he had to die for you. Because if you did, then you'd say, actually, I deserve nothing. But through Jesus Christ, I am completely forgiven and accepted. I've been crowned with glory and honor. I am supremely blessed. I've got nothing to complain about. Secondly, you live in self-loathing. You beat yourself up a lot of the time. When someone criticizes you, you immediately think, oh, I'm such a failure. You focus on all the ways that you're not serving others and all the good things that you're failing to do, and you conclude you must be a useless, worthless person. If that's how you think, then you also are failing to really grasp that Jesus had to die for you, failing to grasp what his death means. Because if you did, then you'd say, I am so sinful he had to die, yet I'm also so loved he was willing to die. He was willing to endure the agony of the cross for my sake, because he values me, he loves me that much. You know, my worth is what I'm worth to God, and he considers me worth dying for. Let me say, I struggle with both those things, self-pity and self-loathing, and they seem to kind of, I can do both in the same day. But that's the root. We need to pray that God will open our hearts, that we might really grasp the significance of Christ's death. That's the second way <clears throat> that we can miss out on the joy of Easter, missing the meaning Missing the assurance that the resurrection brings. The declaration that the penalty has been paid in full. There's no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus. Just think what joy, what freedom that would bring if we could really grasp it. The third way, and more briefly, the third way we can miss out on the joy of Easter is by ignoring the spiritual reality of the resurrection. This third mistake gets at your actual experience, your actual lived experience of relationship with Jesus. You know, it's possible to believe all the right things about Jesus, uh, but in your lived experience, he might as well be dead. You have little experience of a personal relationship with him. You know about him, you don't really know him. Now, you can be a genuine Christian, have true faith, but still be ignoring or neglecting this spiritual reality of the risen Jesus. Now, if I asked you, I'm sure you'd say you believe that Jesus is alive. But by the way that you live, your life shows few signs of actually relating to Jesus as a personal living Lord. Again, I am convicted at this point this sermon is very personal for me. Um, think about how you might relate to uh, a loved one who has passed away. You might go to their grave. You might put some flowers down. You might stand there for a while and 
think about that person. You might give thanks for all the ways that that person has blessed your life. It, it can be a really moving experience. But you're not relating to them as a living reality. You're, you're dealing with a memory, aren't you? Is your prayer life like standing at a grave? You might be full of gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. You, you might find the memory of his death moving you might sing of how your saviour died for you but do you know him as a living saviour do you know him as the resurrected lord who is alive today and who longs to enter into deeper fellowship with you you know the famous words from Revelation chapter 320 the risen Jesus says here I am I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Those words are often used as an evangelistic appeal. You know, calling on people to receive Christ into their lives. Jesus is knocking on the door of your life. Won't you invite him in and be saved? And that is true. And if that's you here this morning, then please do receive Christ and begin that relationship with him. But Jesus actually spoke these words to Christians. He spoke them to the church in Laodicea, to his own people, already saved. But he's saying that he longs for closer fellowship with them. He longs for more intimate communion, deeper relationship. And so I wonder this Easter morning if you, Christian, need to hear these words from the risen Jesus. Here I am, alive, and I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And here's the promise. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I don't often do this, in fact, I don't think I've ever done this. But if you want to respond to that invitation this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand. Not right now, in a moment. If you want to open the door to the risen Jesus, maybe for the first time, but maybe to say, I want that deeper relationship then I want you to stand as an expression of that commitment. Now, I realize this is risky because now you're worried if you don't stand, you're going to look like a substandard Christian. That's not what I want. If your relationship with Jesus is going well, great. Keep on keeping on. The people I'm really speaking to are those who know their relationship with Jesus is not what it could be. It's not what they want it to be. Maybe it's not what it has been in the past but you want things to change. You've heard the risen Jesus speaking to you today and you want things to change. If that's you, you don't have to. Why don't you stand now as an expression of that desire and commitment that you want to know Jesus as a living reality. You want to walk with him. You want to talk with him. You want to eat with him. You want to enjoy him. 
things probably won't change overnight. It'll take time and energy like any relationship. Maybe you'll have to work on your prayer life. Maybe you'll need to learn to pray. Maybe it'll mean getting back to his word, back in the habit of spending some moments each day pondering his words to you and remembering that they're not dead words, they're living words. It's the living Jesus speaking to you. If you want to respond, I'll ask you to stand and I'm going to pray for all of us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the joy of Easter. We thank you for the miracle of the resurrection and the confidence that we can have that it really happened. We thank you for the meaning of the resurrection, for the assurance that you've done everything to secure our salvation. And we thank you for the spiritual reality of the resurrection. And we pray, especially for those standing now, for those of us who acknowledge that we have neglected our relationship with you, as we open the door to you today, may you come in and fill our lives with joy. Give us the help of your spirit to deepen our fellowship with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Please take a seat.